Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show that features stories and poems by local and regional authors, the kinds that touch the emotions, followed by conversations that offer depth and insight into the readings and writing lives of the authors. We record this show in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, located right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. Support for Charlotte Reader's Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, conveniently located in Park Road Shopping Center. And by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. For more information about these book-minded sponsors who help authors give voice to their written words, please visit them online at parkroadbooks.com and cmlibrary.org or drop by the bookstore or any library branch. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. In today's episode, we meet Scott Seifert, author of the First Declaration of Independence, The Disputed History of the Mecklenburg Declaration, of May 20, 1775, and we explore the facts behind the controversy as to whether Mecklenburg County was first to declare independence from Great Britain. Ken Burns, documentary filmmaker, says, Scott Seifert has rescued and brought vividly to life a little-known story of our revolutionary past and the urgent need by our ancestors for freedom. President John Adams called the controversy over the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence one of the greatest curiosities and one of the deepest mysteries that ever occurred to me. Andrew Roberts, author of Storm of War and Masters and Commanders, calls the book one of the finest pieces of historical detective work I've ever read, engaging, scholarly, and wholly convincing. Scott starts the show with a reading from the prologue, where early on the morning of Friday, May 19, 1775, John McNitt Alexander of Mecklenburg County rode his horse along a narrow path toward the small village of Charlotte. Early on the morning of Friday, May 19, 1775, John McNitt Alexander of Mecklenburg County in the royal province of North Carolina rode his horse slowly south along a a narrow dirt path. His destination was the county courthouse in the village of Charlotte, a small hamlet of less than 100 people. A meeting of local militia leaders, of which McNitt was one, had been scheduled for later that day. Two representatives from each of the county's nine militia companies had been summoned to attend. McNitt rode with a purpose. The agenda for that day's meeting was to discuss the unsettled, volatile, and increasingly alarming state of affairs in the American colonies. By the spring of 1775, the American colonies were in turmoil, or, as Lord Dartmouth put it in a letter to North Carolina Royal Governor Josiah Martin, a state of general frenzy. The principal issue was Parliament's continued insistence on taxing tea imported from India. Taxation had long been a contentious subject in America. The Americans were not represented by elected officials in Parliament, and thus taxation was regarded by the American colonists as illegal and arbitrary, little more than government-sanctioned theft. Earlier protests in the colonies had led to the repeal of the Despised Stamp Act, but in May 1775, the tea tax remained. Attempts by the British to enforce the tax only exacerbated tensions. The location of the meeting was the Mecklenburg County Courthouse, a rustic, unpainted log cabin which stood atop six red brick pillars, each 10 feet high, in the middle of Charlotte. 
Word of the meeting spread from church to church and from farm to farm. By May 19th, concerned citizens from throughout the region converged on the courthouse. As the story was later told, on the afternoon of May 19th, at the meeting to which McNitt was riding, following a furious debate in the log courthouse in Charlotte, the citizens of Mecklenburg resolved to declare themselves free and independent from Great Britain. They drafted, debated, and unanimously adopted the first Declaration of Independence in the American colonies. It was called the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence, and it was written in language that was magisterial, succinct, and timeless. As President John Adams would later write, quote, the genuine sense of America at that moment was never expressed so well before, nor since. The Mecklenburg Declaration was less than a page long and consisted of only five brief resolutions, the third of which read, we do hereby declare ourselves a free and independent people to the maintenance of which independence we solemnly pledge to each other our mutual cooperation, our lives, our fortunes, and our most sacred honor. As the story went, the people of Mecklenburg then tasked a local tavern owner and militia captain named James Jack to deliver the resolutions to North Carolina's three elected delegates at the Second Continental Congress in Philadelphia. Captain Jack completed his mission, delivering the Mecklenburg Declaration in June of 1775, but the delegates deemed it premature. And all this had taken place almost 15 months before July 4th, 1776, while national figures such as George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, and Thomas Jefferson were still contemplating reconciliation with Great Britain, not independence. It was the first American Declaration of Independence, a document that many argued deserved to be ranked with the Magna Carta and the French rights of man. However, not everyone believed that the document existed. There were a number of problems with this so-called Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence, which Jefferson, among others, was quick to point out. Why had no one ever heard of it? The three congressional delegates to whom Captain Jack delivered the Mecklenburg Declaration never mentioned it, nor did the records of the Continental Congress, nor apparently was it ever published. How is it possible that this paper should have been concealed from me to this day, John Adams would ask many years later. Then there was the question of the language of the Mecklenburg Declaration itself, elegant perhaps, but also strangely familiar. Our lives, our fortunes, our sacred honor, inalienable rights, dissolve the political bands. The phrases sounded much, perhaps too much, like the Declaration of Independence of July 4th, 1776, the famous document written in Philadelphia over a year later. Was this a coincidence? Was the Mecklenburg Declaration a loose copy after the fact of Jefferson's Declaration of July 4th? Or perhaps the opposite was true. Perhaps Jefferson had plagiarized from the Mecklenburg Declaration. As bizarre and conspiratorial as this sounded, no less than an authority as Adams believed this might be the case. Either these resolutions are a plagiarism from Mr. Jefferson's Declaration of Independence, Adams would privately write to a friend, or Mr. Jefferson's Declaration of Independence is a plagiarism from these resolutions. And as it happened, one of the North Carolina delegates, to whom Captain Jack delivered a copy of the Mecklenburg Declaration, was William Hooper, later a member of the committee charged with drafting the National Declaration and a friend of Jefferson's. Had Hooper, or even Jefferson, copied the Mecklenburg Declaration and then covered it up? Was this the original government conspiracy? Finally, and the biggest mystery of all, if the Mecklenburg Declaration did exist, where was it? Scott Seifert is a co-founder of the May 20th Society, whose goal is to continue the commemoration of the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence 
but more broadly to celebrate Charlotte's revolutionary spirit. The Society has brought many national historians to speak in Charlotte, including David McCullough and Ken Burns, completed the Charlotte Liberty Walk, and erected a statue to Captain James Jack on the Little Sugar Creek Greenway. Scott's first book is The First Declaration of Independence, The Disputed History of the Mecklenburg Declaration of May 20th, 1775, a definitive study of the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence controversy, and his latest book is Eminent Charlotteans. To pay the bills, Scott is a partner at Moore Van Allen, where he practices business and corporate law with a focus on international business transactions. He studied history and political science as an undergraduate at UNC Chapel Hill and the London School of Economics. He received his master's degree in foreign affairs from the University of Virginia and his JD from UNC Chapel Hill. Scott is vice chairman of the Trail of History and is a member of the board of directors of the Belcher Museum of Modern Art and was named among Who's Who Legal, M&A, and Governance, Best Lawyers in America for Corporate Law, and North Carolina Super Lawyer. Host Landis Wade is committed to making this podcast worth your time. He's a recovering trial lawyer, award-winning author, book and dog lover, whose laid-back style encourages authors to read and talk about their published and emerging works. You can listen to this show for free at charlottereaderspodcast.com or at Charlotte McMurg Library's Digital Branch website. And you can subscribe and listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, so you're co-founder of this thing called the May 20th Society. Let's uh, let's talk first about that, uh, how that got started. Uh, as I recall the story, you were having a, a pint at uh, Rira or something like that, and you had, you had a friend and you had this. So tell us about that story. So I, about that's exactly right. So about 15 years ago, I was having a pint with a friend of mine, Charles Jonas, who's a native Charlottean, and he was telling me the story of the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence and how Mecklenburg County had been the first county to declare independence from Great Britain, and this had been a really big deal, and it was the date on the state flag and so forth and so on. And I remember thinking, you're making this up. This, I've never heard of this. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I'm a Charlotte native. I've gone through you know, CMS, and I had never heard this story before. And, and so you know, I was kind of shocked. And he said, no, it's true. And so we decided, uh, just sort of a fun civic project, that we were going to start this group called the May 20 Society to bring back the commemoration. And so we got a group of you know, young executives together, some were sort of in real estate, some lawyers, um, and that sort of you know, young executive networking group, and said, let's, uh, let's have a party and see where this thing goes. So we did. So we had a party at Reraz, and about 300 people showed up. And uh, as we would tell the story to people, they'd say, this is amazing. We've never heard of this either. And we just thought it was a cool, fun story. Yeah. And so we went out and you know, raised some money. And I think we just hit the timing of this really well because um, you know, people were, for whatever reason, we're in that period of Charlotte where the people were thinking, I want to learn more about Charlotte's history. You know, where are all the old buildings? Where's the history? Um, and so as we told the story, uh, people got very excited. And then we um, raised some money. We funded the Captain James Jack statue on the Greenway. As you pointed out, it's not Paul Revere. It's Captain Jack. <laughs> uh, and then, let, let, let me stop you there just a second, yeah. uh, Scott. So when you started this, having had a beer, you, you're introduced to this story. You say, really, really? Come on. 
when you started the society, were you a believer? Have you, had you dived in enough to, to think that maybe this really did happen? Or were you still just kind of having a collective good time in Charlotte with a bunch of people telling a good story? We, we were just we were just having a party, honestly. I, I knew <laughs> nothing about this. I, had no, I knew none of the history. None of the group really did. I right. mean, we just thought it was a fun civic type thing. But so as the group went on, my involvement grew. Because we would, you know, people would ask uh, questions of the media. You'd have to do a press release or talk to the radio folks about it. Give us some history about this. And so I became educated on the subject and started reading more about it. And just, and really, you know, I'm a lawyer, so I just gravitated toward, toward can I prove this is true? <laughs> and, and so I became the regimental. This was your pro bono case, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. So this, so this, I became the regimental historian of the group. And so I'd read the books and delve into who Captain Jack was and where did he live and when did he ride and how do you know this and so forth and so on. And so after three, four, five, eight years, um, I realized I'd become the world's leading expert on this obscure historical episode. And <laughs> plus, that, you're ha- plus you're having a party every year, right? I'm having a party every year. So I, you know, I said, I've got to write all this down. Just one to mm. keep it in my, my own head straight as to what the facts yeah. were. But also, it's a very complicated story. There's many layers. So I thought, you know, if someone wants to learn about this in 50 years, like I was, it'd be great to have one sort of definitive source of information on this whole complicated episode. And so that's how the book came to be. And you were basically basically kind of studying this, uh, researching it, writing things down to be able to respond to these press releases. And you thought, I'm starting to get a body of work here. Maybe I'll assemble this into a book. Is that sort of absolutely right? That's exactly what happened. That's exactly. Okay. That's exactly what uh, a little bit more about the May twentieth society. Um, you had a you've had a speaker series in the past. You've had some prominent people come to town. You want to drop some names in that regard? Yeah. So we um, we did a speaker series for about ten years, and we would bring a national or international historian to Charlotte, and we would donate them to CMS. And CMS would bring about a, you know fifteen hundred school kids up to Central Piedmont Community College, and we would have Ken Burns, David McCullough. Cokie Roberts, the British historian Andrew Roberts, uh, Doris Cairns Goodwin, and so forth. I mean, really, the A-list of historians, we've had them all at, at one point or the other. And those were really, really great events. Uh, and from that, that pivoted into a project called the Charlotte Liberty Walk, which we, you know, we said, look, we've got all these Revolutionary War sites in Uptown Charlotte, but nobody knows they're there. I mean, all, we don't have any old buildings. We're not Charleston or Philadelphia. There's no right. visible, tangible thing you can really point out other than the old cemetery. But a lot happened here. You know, Cornwallis came through town. He burned the city down. Jack lived at so-and-so location. So we did a virtual walking tour that links together all these Revolutionary War period sites along Tryon Street that you can go to an app or you can go to a brochure and you can see where the history took place. And that now was a got, great project. And you've got that map on your... Uh, website and also links to another website for the history walk. And, That's right. And, you know, if you're, if you're coming into uptown Charlotte or downtown Charlotte, whatever you like to call it every day on, you know, <laughs> Randolph road that runs down through fourth street there, you're going to see captain Jack off to the right. That's there, right. right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So um, a little bit about the history of the May 20th celebrations. It's kind of been a ebb and flow over the years, as you said in your book, at one time, this is a very celebrated event, almost more so than July 4th. Right. 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 I mean, right. I mean, in Charlotte, they had parades in the, in, in the 1800s. Uh, what was the peak of that? When, when did it drop off? And then when did y'all start it back up again? And so that's a good point. So this is how uh, part of the interest in, in this for me, and I think for a lot of people in Charlotte is, you know, whether you're new to Charlotte or whether you've lived here your whole life, uh, because we don't have a lot of tangible, visible history, people think, what a great city. It's obviously 25 years old. 
And so when we started, when I started learning more of this story about the Mech Deck, as we call it, the Mech Deck celebrations, it was just amazing to me that this was at one point the biggest thing in Charlotte Mecklenburg history. It was the biggest thing in North Carolina history. It was the thing the state was known for for many years. So the Mech Deck commemorations began around 1805, and there's these stories of uh, these old Revolutionary War veterans wearing pins that say 75 and having toasts uh, and sitting outside on the lawn in front of First Presbyterian Church at the turn of the 19th century. Uh, we had four sitting American presidents come to North Carolina for Mech Deck Day. Uh, we had President Taft in 1905, uh, the biggest of which was uh, President Ford, in 1975 at Freedom Park. Hmm. And so this was kind of, this was a really big deal. And today we've, you know, you see the first in freedom license plates that have come back. Um, when we tell people the date, May 20th, 1775 is on the state flag. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Say, been, this, that's unbelievable. <laughs> How could that be? I, I've been mentioning that to people when we're talking, I'm talking about this episode and having read your book. Yeah. And I said, do you know what the date on our state flag means? And everybody says, no. No one knows. I, I don't know. No, nobody, knows. nobody knows. We're, you we're and I know. Have, we're going to educate them today, That's right? right? That's right. That's right. All right. Okay. Uh, a bit about the writing life before we dive back into the book here. Um, you're a full-time practicing lawyer. You're a you know, corporate lawyer. You got all these deals you're doing and everything. Um, how did you work this book in to this uh, process? Because it's a very comprehensive book. It's, uh, you know, you're not a historian, right? I mean, you're going right. to admit that right off the bat. Correct. So you're a lawyer. And so uh, when I read this, I could see some lawyer in you because you're actually you know, assembling the evidence, right? You're presenting a case, although you're a corporate lawyer. We'll give you some some slack there, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, how did you do it? So, you, but you're right. I, I treated this in a way, it's, uh, it's, it's arguing a case. And when you argue cases, you know, you want to be, you got to be fair to both sides. You can't hide the evidence that's disfavorable to you. You have to present it, but you have to, if you can't spin it or explain away it, you know, as well as you can. So this was a perfect subject for me in that, you know, on the one hand, you had to, I wanted to make the case for the Mechdex story and the truth of it. But on the other hand, it has some real holes in it, right? And it's got some, some, some legitimate criticisms and some things that can't be quite explained away, which is really part of the fun of the story in a sense because it's not resolvable, right? If right. we knew this happened or we knew it didn't happen, who cares? But right. the fact that <laughs> it's this historical mystery and Jefferson is involved and President Adams is involved and you've got missing documents and house fires. And so that's what made it really cool. But so for me, you know, this just became a multi-year hobby project where and what I would do was uh, because it is a complicated story, you have, for example, a single piece of paper that exists in Chapel Hill Library, right, that's t- tied to the story. And so I would just focus, for example, on that one piece of paper. And then I would write a chapter or, or a paragraph or a page delving into that fact. And then the next day it'd be a different fact. And then Mm -hmm. it would be, okay, who are the Presbyterians? Who are the people that lived in this community? What do they think? Uh, Where do they live? And that became sort of, you know, a a page or two. And then over the course of many years, you stitch together all these variegated stories and facts into some sort of narrative arc. But my process was simple, which is I was going to write at least one paragraph a day. That was it. And that, in some days, that was the hardest thing in the world, you know, as you know, as, as a writer. And some days... It was the easiest thing. But as long as yeah. you kept doing it every day, even if it was two sentences, you, you stayed on track. And over the course of many years, that really adds up, right? Well, I was going to say, one paragraph a day, that'll take a while to write a book this thick, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> it does. Um, and this led to another book you wrote uh, about eminent charlatans, many of which grew out of this right. uh, revolutionary time period. 
Uh, did you think uh, at any time in your life that you would ever become an author? Uh, I don't know. I, I, you know, I always had an interest in writing uh, in a very kind of vague way, like a lot of people do. And I, I right. read a lot right. and I loved history and I loved politics. And, and, uh, but I had no interest in local history at all. Couldn't have cared less. It was like the least sexy, less least glamorous, you know, topic for me. You know, twenty years ago, if you told me I'd have an interest in local history, I would have. There's no way. You know, it's well, just, it's, it's not. It's, it doesn't jump out at you here in Charlotte, like right, you said. I mean, right. we've torn we've torn down a lot of our local history. Yeah, right? and, and you gr- if you grew up around it too, it just doesn't have any cachet, and it's right. Who cares? Right. So yeah. this story though was so interesting, and and as you say. It had a certain story, but there's all these sort of ancillary characters like Joseph Graham. Joseph Graham fights the British in downtown Charlotte in um, 1780 and is wounded, and he's got a great story. Uh, and he is a witness to the Mechdex stories, but he's sort, yeah, of, sort of peripheral. Right? Yeah, there's a lot of ancillary stories I wanted to bring back together. Yeah, we're going to talk about the witnesses in the, in the course of this today because um, as lawyers, you know, um, more so than historians, we rely upon witness testimony, oral testimony, and the historians don't so much care as much about that as they care about the documents themselves. So let's go back a second to to the opening read. John McNitt Alexander, he's on a horse, May 19th, uh, which, by the way, this episode is going to release on May 19th. Uh, He's riding into Charlotte, a little village at the time. He is going to be uh, secretary to a meeting uh, that's got historic consequences and keeper of the documents. Uh, let's talk briefly about him uh, and uh, you know what he meant to this whole whole discussion about the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence. So John McNitt Alexander is, is a fascinating character and part of the fun of this story for me was was learning about what this community looked like 250-ish years ago and who these people were. And John McNitt Alexander, like most of the people that lived in the county, was of Scotch-Irish descent, uh, was a Presbyterian, a very devout Presbyterian. Uh, the Presbyterians were very community-oriented. They were extremely well-read, uh, thoughtful people, but they brought with them from the old country of a real distaste of the English government and the Anglican church, uh, which they spread throughout this community. Uh, and in fact, that's part of the reason John McNetta and others, Ephraim Brevard, uh, Thomas Polk, are living here in the first place because they had wanted to get as far away as they could from English government and Anglican rule. And where do you go? You go into the backcountry. You go into the rural uh, the Carolinas where there's very little government and you could take whatever land you wanted and it's basically unoccupied and live by yourself in a community mm-hmm. of like-minded people. And so one of the leaders of this community at the time is John McNeil Alexander. In fact, Mecklenburg County at this time is almost an Alexander fiefdom. In fact, in the 1790 census, the first census in the United States, 15% of the entire county of Mecklenburg were Alexanders. <laughs> Think about that, right? Yeah. And he's yeah. Sort of the leader of this crew. Yeah. And, and also, um, before COVID-19 became a thing, and we had to do this uh, podcast remotely as we're doing now, you and I had plans to do this uh, in partnership with the Charlotte Museum of History. Uh, we were going to have a big live event. Uh, we were going to have uh, people come out there because it's also the site of the home place of Hezekiah Alexander, that's right. Who was who was the brother, right, of John McNitt? Exactly, exactly. Now Hezekiah lived in the, you know, he lived in the house that you couldn't huff and puff and blow down, right? He right, he had a right, he, right. He, he had a stone house, whereas 
John McNeil Alexander, his home was made of wood, right. which is part of the problem in this whole story, right? That's right. That, yeah, that, that becomes tell, an important t- fact t- later. <laughs> t- tell us why that's an important fact. Well, that becomes an important fact. And just pivoting back to the Alexander, so of the 26-ish people involved in the meeting that forms this MECDEC story, six or eight of them are Alexanders, depending on how you count. And so you're right. So Hezekiah Alexander is one of them. He's a participant in the story. He has a stone house, which is why we still know and remember him. Most everyone else did not, including John McNeil Alexander. He lived on a tract of land called Alexandriana uh, in North Charlotte towards Huntersville, uh, which is a very, very large uh, property owner, very well-respected citizen. In fact, on place maps, even from the 1830s, Alexandriana was shown on the maps along places like Concord or Salisbury, other sort of locations. But in April of 1800, John McNeil Alexander's home, uh, one of his homes, I should say, on the property burns down. And in that home are the original records of the Mecklenburg Convention, including whatever original papers of the MECDEC were then in existence. Mm, yeah, there we go. Okay, so um, they burn up in a fire, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and, literally, uh, yeah. Literally, literally, yeah. And that's one of the problems. Um but if we pivot back for a moment to the events of the day, we're in 1775, we've had this meeting. Uh, if you believe what happened, there's this declaration, which we're going to, you're going to read about in just a little bit here. Um, they call together um, this little group of men and uh, they say, we got to have somebody take this to the convention that's going on, right? Uh, right. And that's, that's in Philadelphia. And so they recruit a guy named, not Paul Revere, but... Captain James Jack. Tell us about okay. Captain James Jack. The Paul Revere of the South. So, <laughs> so, and Jack's an interesting character. I mean, this whole story has all these these interesting sort of, um, you know, uh, threads to it. And the James Jack story is one of them. And then for many years in the 19th century, he was known as the Paul Revere of the South. And Jack's involvement is after the meeting takes place on the 19th to 20th of May, 1775, they draft a series of resolutions declaring Mecklenburg County free and independent. And then they say, well, what do we do next? This is a small community of, as I say, farmers living in the woods. Um, they've just engaged in a treasonable act against the mightiest empire, you know, in the, in the history of the world. So they say, well, let's give these resolutions to somebody, go to Congress, give them to the, our congressional reps and ask them what we should do next. And so that's the plan. So Captain James Jack, by, by legend, volunteers. They give the papers to Captain Jack. He rides to Philadelphia and delivers them to the North Carolina congressional delegates. And this is in June of 1775. And we got a little read here that you're going to do from the book. Uh, starts on page 83. And uh, I'm going to have you read that to kind of set up this discussion. Sure. A few days following the meeting on May 19th, wrote McNitt, a considerable part of the committee men convene to decide what to do next. Given their rash decisions on May 20th and the wavering views of some of the citizens, the committee men concluded that, that the prudent course of action was to consult with their elected delegates in the Continental Congress. These three delegates were, at the time, the highest elected officials in the province and the only ones vested with democratic legitimacy to speak for the populace. But getting their guidance was not going to be easy. Philadelphia was over 550 miles away, and time was of the essence. After discussing what to do, the committeemen decided to designate a courier, quote, to go express to Congress, then in Philadelphia, with a copy of all said resolutions and laws, etc., and a letter to our three members there, Richard Caswell, 
William Hooper, and Joseph Hughes in order to get Congress to sanction or approve them, close quotes. To do that, they needed a messenger, someone who was discreet, tenacious, and above all, dedicated to the Patriot cause. In volunteering to carry the resolutions of the Mecklenburg Convention, he would be carrying his own death warrant if he were caught by the British authorities, and not only his own death warrant, but a death warrant for all those other men whose names were listed on the resolutions. Their lives would be in his hands. The committee selected a 45-year-old tavern owner named Captain James Jack. Jack, later in popular known as Captain Jack, due to his rank in the county militia. So there we are. We have the uh, fine upstanding citizens uh, of Mecklenburg uh, doling out the most important uh, mission to a tavern owner, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> and uh, you As got we a great... would today. As we would today. <laughs> As we would today. That's why you hold all your meetings at, uh, at the brewery, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, old, old Mac. So uh, shout out there. Um, and you got in the book a great map here that uh, Captain Jack's route, uh, where, where it shows the route from Charlotte to Philadelphia, uh, overlaid on a map of Colonial Roads in 1775, and it is a long trip. I mean, you can see him. He's going up. Uh, he leaves Charlotte. He goes through Salisbury, Salem, which becomes important later in our discussion, uh, the Bethabara area, through Roanoke, uh, through Stanton, Winchester, I guess that's West Virginia, uh, York, uh, Lancaster, and then into Philadelphia. So he, he's on horseback. How many weeks did it take him to get there? Well, if we we don't know, but if we speculate and extrapolate from from distance, it it was probably about a three week trip. And so, the question that we're going to be talking about today is, what was he carrying? Right. Right. That's right. That is the <laughs> ultimate question of this whole story. Did he have the the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence and the resolves? Did he have the resolves and not the Mecklenburg Declaration, or did he have both? I mean, right. that's that's it. That's part of the. Okay. All right, so uh, who did he meet with in Philadelphia? Let's talk about these men. We, you you kind of alluded to it in your read here. Um, I, I want to have you tell us a little bit about what was going on at the time. You talk about this in your book, and I think it's instructive as to maybe why, even if he did have the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence with him, uh, they might not have jumped up and down and run to others in the Continental Congress to say, hey, look what we found. Right. So what's going on at the time um, in May, June of 1775 is you've just had the battles of Lexington and Concord occur in April uh, of that earlier that uh, season. Uh, and that alarms the whole citizenry. It, it alarms people as it does in Mecklenburg County that it makes uh, people very outraged against the British authorities. But it also, about a month later, causes everybody to pause and realize, you know, we're on the brink of a civil war. We're like a rebellion against Great Britain. And the congressional representatives, including Thomas Jefferson and, and Adams and all the people we now think of as, as, as the patriots of that period, were at that moment very reluctant to go that far. That was an extreme step that no one was quite ready for. Remember, the National Declaration is more than a year away at this point. So Congress in June of 1775 in Philadelphia is debating a series of resolutions that we call the Olive Branch Petition, which is the American delegates reaching out to Great Britain and asking for gestures of reconciliation. And basically under the theory that, you know, the, 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 the taxation and the blockade of Boston and all these punitive measures uh, are very abhorrent and need to be lifted, but we do not yet want to go so far as to declare independence. And so you can imagine if Jack arrives in the summer of 1775, 
bringing a series of extreme radical proclamations from a group of Scotch-Irish Presbyterians living in the backcountry, these would not have been well-received. It was, it was just completely out of tune for the times. And so according to all the accounts of what happens, he meets with uh, some of the North Carolina congressional delegates, and they say, we thank you for your efforts, but this is premature. And premature is the word that occurs over and over in people writing about this at the time, and they send Jack home because it was premature. Yeah, and they didn't even, according to what you say later in your book, that these three representatives didn't even write about it. So there's no evidence there that they received it. It's almost as if they might have even suppressed it out of fear or concern that uh, had it come to light, it could have accelerated things to a point that they exactly. weren't ready, exactly. ready to accelerate. And a couple of interesting facts. I mean, none of the you don't see statues to John McNeil Alexander or the other signers. Uh, they're not well known, but, you know, Captain Jack, he's got a beer named after him now, and he got uh, he's got a statue <laughs> in his in his honor. I mean, he came out pretty well in this whole thing. Right? He, yeah, he 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 came out disproportionately well. I mean, considering that he's not even one of the signers or the delegates yeah. to the convention, so he's really sort yeah. of the FedEx guy, according to one theory. But uh, but it's a great but it's a great story. So he kind All of right. encapsulates the spirit of the whole thing. Okay. Well, look, uh, when we come back, we're going to dive into the uh, controversy of the 1800s and the investigation that followed. Uh, we're also going to talk about uh, the committee that North Carolina established to investigate this. Uh, we've got a lot more, including uh, uh, some some further discussions about the controversy and Scott's final argument uh, about uh, whether the document uh, did exist uh, at one time. So stay with us, please. Hey, listeners, I hope you're enjoying this episode uh, with Scott Seifert as much as I am. I was a history major in college. It's uh, always fun to dive back into history, particularly when uh, when there are a couple of conspiracies involved. And uh, in this case, Charlotte uh, being such a little place at the time, uh, who knows? Maybe maybe there's something to this. Uh, we're going to find out more in the second half of the show. And uh, uh, But before we do that, I just wanted to talk to you just a, just a second about our Patreon page. We launched this in January uh, as a way to allow listeners to help me help authors give voice to the written words to defray some of the costs. And we have this uh, site. It's uh, Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Charlotte Readers Podcast, all one word. Uh, we post exclusive content at that site. We also post some free content as well. But uh, if you're a supporter, a member supporter of the show, uh, you're going to get access to this uh, exclusive content, uh, including all the back content that we've got and if, if particular tiers that you join at. And you're also going to get access to all the free content through your, this is pretty cool, a private RSS feed. That may not mean much to you, but uh, uh, basically you can take uh, this feed that the Patreon site will provide to you when you sign up. You can paste it into your podcast app. And everything we post to that uh, Patreon page that uh, falls into your tier of support will come directly to your mobile device, just like any other podcast. And everything we post for free, like our COVID-19 read-in, where we had uh, 18 episodes with 44 authors reading their essays, uh, their short stories, and their poetry, all that will be available to you no matter what tier uh, you join. So a lot of great content uh, available at our Patreon site. You can check it out, patreon.com slash Podcast. But hey, we don't, uh, we're not forcing this we're just uh hope it's not too hard to sell we we want to make it available to those who want to be a part of it but if you don't if you just want to listen to the show we're, we're great with that too we really love having you as a listener we've got about uh, 20 uh, exclusive hours of content 20 episodes uh, available on patreon at the moment uh, we just added 
two more this month. Uh, one is Nicole Ayers, uh, who's going to be on our undercover show uh, later in the year here with uh, her book, uh, Love Notes to My Body. She is also an editor, so we talked to her about the whole editing process. What do you do uh, after you've got a draft or two and you need some help? Uh, how to work with an editor, the things you should be thinking about. We also have Carrie Knowles. She was on our long-form show in a previous season. She is a former prose laureate uh, in North Carolina, and she is a short fiction writer and also done some novels as well. But uh, she's got a new book called A Self-Guided Workbook and Gentle Tour on Learning How to Write Stories from Start to Finish. She and I talk about uh, 10 of the 20 chapters in that uh, episode. Uh, good stuff uh, if you're a writer and want to think about uh, you know, what, what to be focused on in your writing processes. So how about this? Let's get back and find out uh, a little bit more about this uh, Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence so that you can start decide at the end of the show whether you're a believer or a non-believer. All right, listeners, I'm back with uh, Scott Seifert, who's uh, stirring up controversy again here in Mecklenburg County uh, with this discussion about the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence, although we're all in favor of it, at least uh, <laughs> you know, we're spiritually supporting it, whether or not historically it's accurate. But hey, you're going to find out some things that will be of interest. We're now getting into a section of the discussion that I like. It's uh, because as a lawyer, um, a lot of times you don't have smoking guns, right? You have to rely upon witnesses. You have to rely upon testimony. So this controversy kind of unfolded in the 1800s because there wasn't any real physical evidence to speak of. I mean, there were some notes in an unknown hand. You know, we'd had the fire. There were some different things circulating around. But um, before we talk about that investigation of the controversy, let's talk about the stakes at the time, you know, because today it's kind of like a, a fun historical you know, story, right? And uh, But at the time, in the 1800s, you had state pride, you had pride in national leaders. Let's talk a little bit about that, Virginia versus Carolina and so forth. So, yeah, so what occurs around 1820 or so, when the newly formed American Republic is taking off, is that, you know, people begin to write histories or biographies of the great periods, of the, of the things that happened in the great men of the time, Adams and Patrick Henry and so forth. And a book is published in Virginia, which basically takes the position that the American Revolution, the story of that great enterprise, is a story of Virginia, right? And it all happened in Virginia. It was Thomas Jefferson. It was Patrick Henry. And without these Virginia folks, the American Revolution would never have happened. And of course, you know, the people in Virginia and the people of Massachusetts and so forth are all very uh, patriotic about their local communities. I mean, America is less than 20-something years old at this point. So one didn't think of oneself as an American Sometimes, as much as one thought of self as a citizen of Massachusetts or Virginia or the South or what have you. And so the people in Massachusetts say, hold on, that's not true. The American Revolution is the story of the Boston Tea Party and Samuel Adams. Massachusetts is responsible and should get credit for the American Revolution. And subsequently, some congressional reps in Mecklenburg County say, well, hold on one second. You guys may not have heard of this. It's not nationally well known, but in our obscure county of Mecklenburg in North Carolina, we had the first Declaration of Independence a year before anybody else. And here we've got some papers to prove it. And, they, and they're, say, they're saying, wait a minute, we're, we're the men of letters. We're, you know, we're Massachusetts, we're Virginia. Right. We're, and you're just a bunch of backwoods, you're a bunch of hicks. you know, frontiersmen right. you know, here, uh, which, by the way, that's really 
what it was at the time. Right. Uh, They're not wrong on, on one level. That's right. We're, that's right. We're, a, we're a long way from anywhere. It's, that's right. That's right. It's kind of like that movie, you know, Brother, Where Art Thou? There's a scene in there where the guy is trying to order something at the store and the, and, and he's frustrated because he says it takes about two weeks to get here. And he says, he says, my goodness, you guys are two weeks from everywhere. <laughs> and Charlotte one. probably at the time was two weeks from everywhere. It's probably like four weeks from everywhere. Four yeah. weeks from everywhere. That's right. So, That's right. So you, so you got this, uh, you got this pride of sort of authorship of the revolution going on. You got Virginia, Massachusetts saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. We, we, we did this and, and you're not going to come in and steal our thunder. Right. That's right. That's right. And then you got, and then you got another very prominent uh, person involved here, Thomas Jefferson, whose reputation at the time was unscathed, no Sally Hemings, no nothing like that. He was, he was, you know, you couldn't doubt his word and the possibility that he may have, you know, plagiarized something. Come on. I mean, yeah, so I that's going, that's going on too at the time, right? Well, so, so what, yes. Yeah, so what happens is uh, the son of John McNabb Alexander, who we mentioned earlier, his son, Dr. Joseph Alexander, who's a medical doctor and a Presbyterian uh, leader in the community, finds in his father's old papers a series of un, undated, unsigned papers, and he publishes them and says, um, you know, everyone in our community knows that the story of the First Declaration of Independence is true. Here's a copy of the written record. It's not clear who wrote it. It's not clear when, but it doesn't matter. It's clearly authentic and legitimate. And he publishes this in the Raleigh paper, and this sets off this huge debate about whether Mecklenburg County was the first to, to declare independence uh, and whether the story is true and what is the origins of this paper and so forth and so on. And that's when the Jefferson Adams uh, controversy kicks off. Yeah, and that's a, that's a great setup for your next read. So whenever you're ready, pick right. it up. May I enclose you one of the greatest curiosities and one of the deepest mysteries that ever occurred to me? Adams wrote Jefferson on June 22nd, 1819. It is in the Essex Register of June 5th, 1819. It is entitled the Raleigh Register, Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence. The Mecklenburg Declaration astonished Adams. How is it possible that this paper should have been concealed from me to this day, he asked rhetorically. Quote, had it been communicated to me in the time of it, I know, if you do not know, that it would have been printed in every Whig newspaper upon this continent. You know that if I possessed it, I would have made the Hall of Congress echo and re-echo in it 15 months before your Declaration of Independence. What a poor, ignorant, malicious, short-sighted, crapulous mass is Tom Paine's common sense in comparison with this paper. Had I known it, I would have commented on it from the day you entered Congress till the 4th of July, 1776. The genuine sense of America at that moment was never expressed so well before, nor since. Richard Caswell, William Hooper, and Joseph Hughes, the then representatives of North Carolina in Congress, you knew as well as I. And you know that the unanimity of the states finally depended on the vote of Joseph Hughes and was finally determined by him. And yet history is to describe the American Revolution to Thomas Paine. Sat verbum sapienti, which means a word to the wise. Adams clearly believed he was on to something, like a hero in a murder mystery who has seen the murderer fleeing the scene of the crime. In a private letter, Adams is more direct than his oblique letter to Jefferson. Quote, a few weeks ago, I received an Essex Register containing resolutions of independence by a county in North Carolina, 15 months before the resolution of independence in Congress, he began. I was struck with so much astonishment on reading this document that I could not help enclosing it to Mr. Jefferson, who must have seen it in the time of it, for he has copied the spirit, the sense, and the expressions of it 
verbatim into his Declaration of the 4th of July, 1776. Yeah, now, just for the listeners who, who don't know or don't recall from their history classes, uh, John Adams and uh, Thomas Jefferson didn't get along very well. Uh, they, no. they were They were brutal political rivals. Jefferson succeeded uh, Adams uh, in the White House, actually was his vice president one time and then ran against him. Uh, but they corresponded uh, quite a bit uh, at this time. You can tell that they were a bit heated. Uh, I think they died on the same day. They did. That's right. That's part, that's of, right. part of the irony of history there um, and how they came back together. But at this point in time, Adams is sort of uh, lashing out at uh, Jefferson in any way he can, I, to the point where he calls it your Declaration of Independence, right? Right, right, right. You <laughs> heard it? the subtext of that letter, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. you know, you know. Yeah, you know, you know, you know, your Declaration. Your Declaration, right. right. You, you scandalous plagiarizer, you, yeah. But let's let's talk a minute then about why um, what was published um, set off uh, – all this controversy and these alarms. If you look on page uh, 117 of your book, you've done a good job of putting side by side the Mecklenburg Declaration's four resolutions and some of the key points and resolutions from the July 4th Declaration. Um, and we can just see, you know, words that uh, are similar. Let's talk about some of those similarities. Right. So the similarities, which is what struck uh the United States, the readers and the people focused on this were, for example, you had in the Mecklenburg Declaration, uh, it would say uh, that Britain was an enemy to the inherent and inalienable rights of man. Whereas, of course, a year later in the 4th of July Declaration, you, you hear the famous words, uh, all men are created equal or are endowed with their creator with certain unalienable rights. Similarly, in the Mecklenburg Declaration, you had a line that says, we do hereby dissolve the political bands which have connected us to the mother country. Whereas in the Fourth uh, of July Declaration, we are it says we are absolved from all allegiance to the British Crown, uh, that all political connection herewith is ought to be totally dissolved, and so forth. So there's enough, there's three or four or five echoes whereby the documents sound similar, and of course this becomes the weapon whereby the Jeffersonians, the Virginians, uh, or those who don't like the story from wherever, uh, latch onto and say. This is completely a forgery. Obviously, someone has stitched together some document based on Jefferson's declaration many years later and is trying to pass this off, and it's a hoax. So, yeah, and, you, and you do a good job in the book of uh, actually pointing out both sides, and, and you say, well, okay, maybe it was stitched together by somebody. <laughs> it could have been stitched together by, by you know Jefferson from their work or the people in Mecklenburg from Jefferson's work and right. try to pass it off later, or – some of this language, as you point out in the book, uh, some of the words you just used, inalienable rights and uh, dissolved and absolve ourselves, and even our fortunes and our sacred honor, which appear in both documents, were terms common to the era, right? That's, I mean, that's exactly right. That's so, exactly it, right. But the one thing which you hadn't talked about yet, which is in both documents, uh, which becomes very important, are the words free and independent, right? Right, right. That really is the foundation of the why the MECDEC is important at all, assuming one believes it's true, is that, for example, after, after the stamp pass is passed in 1765, all these counties around Rowan County and Lincoln and Tryon County and so forth, everyone passes various resolutions saying we are very unhappy with, uh, King, with uh, the British government. Although we are loyal citizens, we're very unhappy with the current you know, uh, state of affairs and so forth. And similarly – 
after the battles of Lexington Concord, uh, one can find in the colonial records and the archives resolutions from all sorts of counties up and down the coast, all the way from Charleston to Boston. The counties would meet and they would pass resolutions. And these resolutions largely look and sound the same. They say, we, first of all, reiterate our allegiance to King George and the British, and the British crown. However, we're really, really unhappy with this, that, and the other, and we need we petition for our rights and so forth. So the mech deck is interesting and unique insofar as it says, we declare ourselves free and independent. It's the only one that does that. That's what makes it unique, which is why, of course, the Declaration of Independence, for the same reason, is unique and stands by itself. It's declaring independence full stop. So if this happens in May of 1775, as the witnesses claim it did, it's the first of any of these resolutions Right to say we are free and independent, we are self-governing, autonomous group. Yeah, and so the governor decided we got to have a commission to kind of resolve this, and they started an investigation, uh, 1829 committee established by the North Carolina General Assembly, and their charge was to go out and see what they could find. Of course, they looked for documents. Uh, they couldn't find the original MacDeck, but they did find a lot of witnesses, right? right? That's right. Let's, let's talk about these people because these weren't just – folks they pulled off the street who might have been passing by and, and looked in the window to see what was going on. These were people that had right. fought in the revolution, upstanding citizens. Um, if you had been representing uh, somebody at that time to prove the existence or non-existence, would you have enjoyed having these as your primary witnesses? Well, yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, these are good, these are good witnesses, as lawyers would say, right? These aren't yeah. a bunch of random folks whose credibility is, you know, so is questionable. So, yeah, so the government, the governor got Monfort Stokes at the time, after this, the Jefferson Adams letter come out where they're debating each other of the veracity of this Mechdex story. Because, and to pivot back to that, of course, Jefferson writes a long rebuttal to John Adams in which he says, I believe the story is spurious. So the battle lines are set. You're a Jeffersonian. You think the whole thing's a hoax or you're an Adams person or North Carolinian. You say it's all true. And then you can get debates on who plagiarized from whom. But basically the battle lines are set between the Adams and the Jeffersonian folks. And so Governor Monford Stokes of North Carolina says, right, we're going to settle this once and for all. Then he gets a commission together to go find the witnesses, find the papers, find whatever evidence can be produced. And they go back and they find 13, 14, 15 eyewitnesses, a couple they don't uh, use their testimony, but the rest are very good witnesses. They are Joseph Graham, who is a leading uh, figure in the community uh, as a Revolutionary War veteran. They find William Polk, son of Thomas Polk, who's a leading citizen of Raleigh, also a Revolutionary War vet veteran. These people are Presbyterian ministers. They are community leaders. Um, so their credibility is quite good. And they all tell basically more or less the same story, which is on May 19th, there's a large meeting in the county courthouse. They each give a list of who uh, attended. Those lists are not the same, but they're 95% the same. You might have one person who's on one list who doesn't appear on another list and so forth. Uh, and so their, their, their evidence is quite good. They also do find some sort of fragmentary papers. One is called the Davy Copy. There's a copy of this Declaration of Independence. It's written. It's uh, torn in half. It's uh, it's in very bad shape. It's ripped up. But they do find it. It's sort of half of the text is found in William R. Davy, who of course is uh, a very famous North Carolinian, uh, North Carolinian founder of the University of North Carolina. Um, so this is the testimony and the uh, affidavits that are gathered by the North Carolina Commission, and they published these about 1830. 1831, and they say, here's here's our evidence. This should settle the subject, right? We've got, I mean, this is this kind of settles it. Now, granted, this is 40 years after the fact, but so what? 
right? These are credible people. They will be believed. In fact, Monfort Stokes, the governor, writes the forward to the committee report and says, I remember at the time holding a copy of this mech deck in my hands. I saw it with my own eyes. So at this point, the mech deck uh, people think it's game, set, match. Uh, true, you don't have the original copy, but so what? You have all this circumstantial ancillary evidence. Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned uh, Colonel Thomas Polk. He was a distinguished veteran of the war. He had a national reputation, uh, though he was only 17 at the time. Uh, he volunteered as a second lieutenant in the South Carolina militia to fight the British and was wounded. Uh, he, after he recovered, he joined the Continental Army, was commissioned. Uh, he fought at the Battle of Brandywine, where his jaw was smashed by a musket ball. He recovered at Valley Forge before returning to service in the Carolinas. And this is just, I mean, you know, this is a guy who's putting country first. And uh, and his story, uh, consistent with the others, uh, is, a, is, as you said in the book, a consistent theme and message. And you outline it, and it's similar to what you've talked about earlier. Um, and it does seem at the time uh, that the question has been resolved. Right. And and then, you know, drum roll here. Uh <laughs> People can't get away from this, right? I mean, they can't seem to uh, not continue to hunt, and somebody is doing some hunting around, and they find something right. that uh, that throws this whole thing into another chapter of confusion. That, right? That, so, that's right. That's right. So, so talk about that. So it's, that's a great point. So uh, the, the government, the, the governor publishes a report, and they think, you know, we've basically won. The preponderance evidence is on our side. You know, how can you dispute the accounts of all of these folks? And, th- and they had. They've kind of settled the subject to some degree. Then a researcher named Peter Force finds in a Charleston newspaper, he's researching Charleston in a, in a uh, newspaper called the South Carolina Gazette and Country Journal of June 1775, a series of resolutions from Mecklenburg County, from Charlottetown. And they are dated May 31st. So not May 19th, not May 20th, as all the witnesses describe, but May 31st. Uh, they're very lengthy. They uh, There's 20 resolutions in all, and they say things like, Landis, now that we are free and independent, you're in charge of organizing the, the courts. Uh, we'll have court every other week. If you spit in the street, it's a six-shilling fine. Uh, our friend Bob's going to gather gunpowder and so forth and so on. Uh, so they don't look or sound like what all the eyewitnesses describe the mech deck is looking or sounding like. They don't say, as you point out, that we are free and independent. They sort of gloss over that um, as if that's a given fact. And they're very lengthy, as I said, So, and they're not dated the same day. So what are these? So these have the effect of confusing everybody further. And so these are called the Mecklenburg Resolves to differentiate them from the Mecklenburg Declaration. And they're clearly authentic, right? Even the most ardent skeptics or Jeffersonians don't dispute that these are legit. I mean, they still exist. They're actually in the King's in the Charleston Library uh, on King Street. I was down there just two months and was looking at them again. Uh, so they're kind of cool. If you're down there, you can go see them. But they confuse everybody because what are they and what do they signify in this debate? So if you are a skeptic, you say, this is all that happened. So all your eyewitnesses are great. We're not disputing that William Polk and uh, all these folks that you got – are lying. They're not. They're credible citizens. But they're telling this story 50 years later. And they are confusing in their own minds a actual event, which is the passing of these resolutions, which are interesting, with a more grandiose, fictitious episode of a Declaration of Independence. And you don't have a Declaration of Independence. You can't produce one. So this is all you got. So these are nice and interesting, but they've witnesses have conflated these interesting resolutions with a Declaration of Independence. 
Now, the pro-MECDEC people, the counter-argument to that is, no, 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 no. This is evidence of the whole story. So these occur 11 days later. So on May 20th, they declare independence, as they said. Those resolutions are lost in a fire. We all acknowledge that. This is them 11 days setting up a, a government. This is them establishing bylaws and a code of conduct for the community. So this is circumstantial evidence of the whole story. It's not the MECDEC itself, but it testifies to what's going on in the state of mind of people at the time. And those two arguments, by the way, are exactly where the, the whole episode is now. If you ask a professional historian to the degree they know or care about the story, uh, the skeptics will say the resolves are real, but that's all there is. And then the MECDEC aficionados will say, no, 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 that's evidence of the whole thing. It doesn't disprove the underlying story itself. It's circumstantial evidence of the whole veracity of the story. Yeah. And I was going to, I've got a couple of questions in this area, but one relates to um, the side that disputes the, the existence of the MECDEC uh, from historical perspective, the historians. Um, is it because they are, they so rely upon primary documents that without the primary document, um, they're not willing to take that sort of leap because then it becomes a matter of faith as opposed to a matter of concrete proof. You know, I, I, I thought a lot about this. It, to me, it's really a lot of professional historians and academic historians, even to this day, they just don't like this story, right? <laughs> they just, I mean, they really don't. So I, I don't even think it's that. Uh, why, why, why? It doesn't fit the national it narrative? It doesn't fit or what? the narrative. You know, it's, <laughs> it became, it came sort of a local legend. Um, so people just, you know, of a certain mindset, just don't like the story. And unless someone turns up with a signed copy of it, they're just going to say it's not true. It doesn't matter that you got 13 witnesses saying it's true. They just don't like it. Um, yeah. So I, I think it's more just honestly, it's more a bias against it so than a, than a sort of evidentiary of, issue. One of the things you pointed out in the book is that this, uh, for someone who's being clever, and sometimes lawyers can be, if you can't, uh, you know, if you're facing these 14 witnesses who are credible, it's kind of hard to stand up in front of a jury and say, you know, they're all liars, but now they've got a convenient argument. And the argument is, right. no, they weren't lying. They were mistaken. That's right. They, they, they conflated that these were honorable people, witnesses. Right. We're not saying they're liars. Right. We're, we're saying they were mistaken. They're you know, all mistaken. Yeah, all mistaken. Now, what happens, uh, the, other, the other thing that happens with this that makes people not like the story, to give some of the skeptics more credit, is a lot of people in North Carolina at the time also conflated the story to matter to make it sound like it mattered more than it did, right? It's okay. Jefferson stole this from us. Yeah. This is we launched the whole, you know, declaration of independence and we're the focus of the American Revolution and so forth. So they kind of blew it out of proportion too, and that caused a backlash. Right. Which that was just happened. like it was just a little musket ball being fired and fi fired into the wilderness. It, yeah, it basically. That hit, hit nobody. That's yeah. I mean that's that's yeah, it had no significance yeah. in that sense. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but to your point earlier, when you're talking about the two documents and what one was versus what the other was, you've got the MECDEC, which is kind of a sweeping kind of resolution. Uh, you've got the uh, resolves, which have more actionable. It's, it's almost like, you know, a corporate mission statement versus the action steps that go with it. Right. Yeah. 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 Or as another point out. You, or, or the Declaration of Independence in the go. Constitution. There you yeah. go. You got to have a Declaration of Independence first, right? <laughs> Yeah, it, lo it logically goes first. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> okay, so um, but another point you got a short read to illustrate this. Uh, there was some the person who actually uh, found these actually had an observation about you know does it really matter? Should it matter to the pride of the people who lived in Mecklenburg, given the actual language of the resolves themselves and uh, what they actually did? And you know if he'd just been carrying those and been arrested on the way. 
uh, they probably would have been hung as well or hanged or however you want right. to say it, you right. know, uh, because it was, it was, it was pretty out there. So let, let's, let's read that little piece on uh, page 157 from, from about force who had, who had found the resolves and what his perspective on this whole dispute was. Force, who had found the resolves, believed in the mistaken identity theory. He viewed the Mecklenburg resolves as the true Mecklenburg resolutions, although in a sense, he didn't understand what the fuss was all about. Quote, the genuineness of the document, commonly known as the Mecklenburg Declaration, is a point upon which the people of North Carolina are, needlessly, we think, extremely sensitive, close quote. After this reasonable and sensitive beginning, Force then expressed the presumptuousness and dismissive logic that drove North Carolina Linians blind with rage. Quote, needlessly, because the means by which its spuriousness is established prove, beyond possibility of doubt, that a series of resolutions indicative of great patriotism and energy was adopted by the citizens of Mecklenburg County in the spring of 1775, close quote. But other than muddying the historical waters, discovery and publication of the Mecklenburg Resolves changed no one's position. The believers argued that the Mecklenburg Resolves were bylaws drawn up by the committee, an action which was consistent with the entire story. Skeptics, on the other hand, had a new line of attack, namely that the Mecklenburg Resolves were the only true document that had, that had been adopted in Charlotte and one that fell short of the claims of its supporters. Okay, so it's a time period when uh, there was a lot of you know, local pride perhaps in this, and that's why the celebrations were as broad as they were. We had big big parades in Charlotte back in the day. Um, and then... Um, Kind of died out a little bit, but there's a there are a lot of good conspiracy angles in this story, right? I mean, you right, could right. you could come out of this and just say, well, there's some of the same wording. It, these sort of happened in two spheres. Nobody copied anybody. You know, it's all true, whatever. Which uh, is the most logical analysis, in my view, <laughs> to be honest with you. But yes, yeah. But dispatch number thirty four. This is what I love, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> this is where the conspiracy surfaces, I think, for the ages. I mean, it, it's a little it's a little chapter in your book. Uh, we talk about it. Let's start with the discussion of what the Cape Fear Mercury was, and then uh, we'll talk about uh, talk about that whole dispatch number thirty four. So this is this is a great episode. So as we say, you know, in the in the eighteen thirties, forties, and fifties, when every all the historians are looking for evidence of it, and that unearths the Mecklenburg Resolves in one case. Uh, President Polk actually sends historians to London to look through various records in the uh, British War Office, and everyone's trying to find definitive proof that this story is true. Uh, and, and one of the pieces of evidence is a letter from uh, Josiah Martin, who's the royal governor of North Carolina, to his superior, the Earl of Dartmouth in London, who's colonial secretary. And Dartmouth, Dartmouth writes, um, your lordship will find in this enclosed newspaper, these resolutions of a committee in Mecklenburg, and these uh, resolutions surpass all the horde and treasonable publications that the inflammatory spirits of this continent have yet produced, right? So he sends him a newspaper. What's in this newspaper? Not clear. So this letter, uh, it goes to London. Right. Uh, it's got an enclosure, the Cape Fear Mercury. Right, um, which is a North Carolina newspaper, right. North Carolina newspaper. Um it ends up in the British Public Records Office. Mm -hmm. um, there's another player here, a person, Andrew Stevenson. He goes uh, at the behest of someone, right? Someone. Do we know who? We don't yeah, know. We don't know. We don't know. We don't know who. And he goes and uh, he looks at what's there. And I'd like you to do a little read here um, related to this, uh, starting on the page 191. This was the smoking gun supporters of the Mecklenburg Declaration were looking for. They seem to have a contemporary record of the actual declaration. 
Now they, all they needed to do was find that newspaper. If they could get their hands on the enclosed newspaper that Martin had sent to Dartmouth, and it contained a copy of the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence, the controversy would be settled once and for all. Historians believe that the enclosed newspaper was an edition of the Cape Fear Mercury, likely published between June 21st and June 30th, 1775. As with all official communications, Martin's letter was recorded and preserved by the British government. The letter of June 30th, along with the enclosed newspaper with the, quote, treasonable, close quotes, resolutions of Mecklenburg, was designated Dispatch Number 34 and placed in the British Public Records Office in London. In the mid-19th century, Dispatch 34 was located. But although the letter and other enclosures were in the file, the enclosed newspaper was missing. On the back of the last page of the letter in the file, there was a pencil notation, quote, Printed paper taken out by Mr. Turner for Mr. Stevenson, August 15, 1837, close quotes. The newspaper had been removed for Andrew Stevenson, the United States ambassador to Great Britain. Why had Stevenson had Turner search out this newspaper in the public records office for him? The year 1837 was at the height of the Mecklenburg controversy. Clearly, Stevenson had acted either at his own initiative. Clearly, Stevenson had acted either at his own initiative or on instructions from Washington. Okay, so we couldn't have a better controversy here, right? Because it yeah. seems you, you go on to say that it seems possible that Stevenson could have removed the newspaper to protect Jefferson's reputation. Um, he was, uh, as you point out in the book, he was a contemporary of Thomas Jefferson and and his friend, and he was a citizen of Virginia, and he was the same political party. Um, and for what purposes he borrowed the Cape Fear Mercury? If borrow is the right term, <laughs> we're not, we're, <laughs> exactly. we're, we don't know as he never, and this is an important point, he, as he never published the contents or told anyone he had seen the paper to me now. Okay. So if he doesn't publish it, right. why doesn't he publish it? What happens to it? Where does it yeah. go? What did it Where say? It I mean, it, if it had been the Mecklenburg Resolves and he was a friend of Jefferson's yeah. and he would have published it, right? He would have, you would have thought. Or Why he go get it if you don't want to tell people what's in it? Exactly. Right? Yeah. 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 Why hide it? Why, Why hide, hide it? it? Why hide it? <laughs> so maybe that's what we need to be looking for, right? You know, yeah. that, uh, that newspaper. Yeah. And, and people have looked for it and they, they tracked down his son after Stevenson's death many, many years later. And among all his father's papers, it's not there. So what did it say? We'll never know, right? <laughs> it's not there. It's not, it's there. not there. Yeah. It's not there. Uh, dispatch, uh, yeah, number 34. That's 34. Okay. All right, good. The original uh, government co- cover-up. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Uh, we could be having Watergate hearings right now. Yeah. Yeah, dispatch number 34 hearings. There we go. Put the FBI uh, on that. Uh, all right, let's do this. We, we're going to have a little, um, little wrap-up here before we get to your – Last word on the topic. Uh, I want to talk briefly about the Moravian explanation because that's an interesting piece. This this is uh, the community called Bethabra in the Winston-Salem area, and it's an area through which Captain Jack had to ride to get to Philadelphia. And they had a tradition, a German tradition at the time, of some might call it journaling. I don't know. <laughs> but they're keeping records, right? And uh, someone found some very detailed records um, of that time period when Captain Jack had gone through that area, which another historian came through and looked at, called it an historical sketch, and which she found to be very credible. She didn't take a position on the Mecklenburg Declaration, but she said the notes themselves were very credible. 
Tell us what's important about what was in those notes. Right. So in the early early 20th century, um, historians are doing research, not on this Mechdeck topic, but on the German language written records of the early Moravians in this period. And as you say, they keep scrupulous records about, you know, the crops or who passes through town um, and what's going on in political events of the day. And among some of these records they find in German uh, is an annotation that says, oh, we should mention for the record that in May, June or July of, this, of uh, 1775, Mecklenburg County declares itself free and independent and made itself self-governing for all. Congress, however, later declares this premature. Boom. And everybody's like, whoa, what is this? This is authentic contemporaneous evidence. And what's interesting, among other things about this, although this is written in German, the words free and independent in this sketch are in English. Why would one switch from English or German to English unless one is writing down the most literal transcription of what one is hearing in the community? And as we discussed earlier, free and independent are, according to the local legend, the words that recur in the Mechdex story. They are not found at the Mecklenburg results at all. So this is contemporaneous evidence of Jack riding through town, which is dealt with elsewhere in the Moravian records, but also that at some period in that summer, Mecklenburg County declares itself free and independent. What does this mean? Well, again, if you know, at this point, the sort of Mecklenburg controversy at the beginning of the 20th century is sort of fizzling out and no one is really caring too much anymore. But this is very good proof for the Mechdeck folks, and they seize on this. Now, again, the skeptics will say that's well and good. You still don't have the original, so we don't care. But still, you know, these pieces of fragmentary circumstantial really are piling up at this point. Yes. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, the wrap up, and I'll give you sort of a final word here to make your closing argument. But uh, May 20th Society brought uh, to town a number of prominent uh, people, historians and academics and journalists. And uh, it's, it was interesting to me when I'm looking at the book on page 214 that uh, David McCullough, George Will, Cokie Roberts, um, they all believed in the existence of the Mech Deck. Uh, I think Cokie Roberts said there's no question that the Mech Declaration of Independence happened. There's not a question in my mind. First of all, there's plenty of evidence. But secondly, when you have folk memory that's that strong, it's always right. And she, had, she said, and often people don't like that, as in Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson. Right. <laughs> but that turned out to be right. Too. I know, exactly. Exactly right. <laughs> and and uh, George Will said what occurred in, on July 4th in Philadelphia might have been a Declaration of Independence, but the first such occurred on May 20th, 1775. Thus did a settlement on the fringe of the British Empire declare war on that empire. And David McCullough, two-time Pulitzer Prize winner, uh, for his biographies on Adams and Truman, when asked his view on the topic, said all of his instincts and all of his experiences over the years inclined him to believe it to be true. So does that does that make you feel vindicated? Game, game set, <laughs> <laughs> what what yeah. can I add to that? What can I, add to can that? You, yeah. I, I do want you to kind of offer your perspective because you didn't take a, um, you know, we're absolutely right and they're absolutely wrong kind right. of approach. Right. You, right. You, you, you balanced as you went. But you gave a pragmatic conclusion as to what you think uh, the result was. Um, tell us in a nutshell what that pragmatic view of this whole whole situation is. Yeah, so when we started, we got the May 20th Society going and all that. You couldn't talk to respectable people in Charlotte about this topic because the, the sort of prevailing view on this, if anybody knew about it at all, was that it was a complete hoax. 
right? And as we as I dug into this, it was increasingly clear that although the evidence was mixed, there's a lot of evidence for this. Now, there's some evidence we've covered against it too, but it wasn't just some fairy tale concocted that everybody should not discuss in polite society. And so we saw that as a victory from the start, that we could reset the entire debate as to, okay, well, let's look at the evidence in a reasonable, rational way and debate as adults what we think it proves. And again, moving this from the, the whole balance of power from this is an entirely a hoax to, ha, huh, there's actually a good amount of evidence here, as McCullough and others have, have uh, opined to. So, yeah, so what I did with the book is I wanted to say, here's all the evidence, pro and con. You're all adults. Make up your own minds, right? Mm-hmm. It's not, it can't be settled. There's not a definitive smoking gun that it happened, and there's no definitive proof that it didn't. There's just a body of evidence that can be interpreted in different ways depending on one's uh, temperament. Yeah, and even uh, you mentioned in your book a local historian Dan Dan Morrill, he's he's very respected. Uh, he's a skeptic uh, himself, but he you said he was forced to conclude there's no question that Captain Jack went to Philadelphia. The question is simply, what did he have in a saddlebag? That's and, where, uh, that's where and, they are. Yeah, and, uh, and and he goes on to say um, that he wants to make one thing clear: uh, one cannot demonstrate conclusively that the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence is a fake. Um, so there you go. I mean, it's not as if they're saying it didn't happen. They just don't have enough evidence to get behind it. So That's right. you, you used Occam's razor. Um, the simplest theory is usually the most likely. Um, and you follow that principle to the conclusion that uh, uh, you're a believer, right? That's right. Yeah. If one believes yeah. the witnesses, it yeah. happened. Yeah. Now, one can also believe that and say it didn't matter. It didn't have any significance for the overall history. It didn't make Mecklenburg County the, you know, the spark of the American Revolution. That didn't happen. So one can debate what relevance it has in history, but I think the preponderance of evidence that something happened like this is clearly there. Okay, Scott. So great spending time with you today. I think it'd be uh, nice to finish this up with a little paragraph uh, that you've got here in the book that I think uh, sort of tells the story of the spirit uh, of Mecklenburg. Historians will continue to quibble over the veracity of the story of the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence. But on that hot day in Charlotte, the people of Mecklenburg cast their verdict in 3,000 pounds of sandy gray bronze. 235 years after the fact, and despite generations of doubters and skeptics, the spirit of Mecklenburg, the spirit of freedom and independence, personified by John Alexander, Thomas Polk, James Jack, and others, continues to burn brightly, whatever the documents may or may not say. And that uh, verdict, that 3,000 pounds of sandy gray bronze you're referring to is the statue of Captain Jack, which uh, looks like the horse is at a full gallop. He's leaning forward purposely uh, on his horse. The horse's mane is flying as if the wind is blowing, and he's headed headed toward independence. That's right. Huzzah. <laughs> Huzzah. 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 <laughs> Huzzah. Um, well, there's going to be this is going to come out on May 19th, uh, Tuesday, May 19th, uh, 2020, and that's going to be in the middle of you know Mech Deck Week. So there's still some believers out there, right, who're going to more every the flag day, and, more every, every day. day, that's more right. every day. So you can, you know, listeners, you can uh, spread spread the word, uh, spread this podcast around, and so let others know about uh, local pride, the, the Mech Deck, and uh, also the controversy. It's it's worth debating. It's fun to debate, uh, uh, and uh, if you're you know if you find any more evidence related to that dispatch that uh, we're working up. on it. We're working on it. It never stops. <laughs> <laughs> it never stops. Hey, Scott, thanks so much uh, for participating uh, in Charlotte Ridge podcast. Yes, sir. Enjoyed it. Well, that's it for today. 
another fine author giving voice to their written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast.